What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. When we think of reading aloud to children, one of the most iconic visions that will come to people's mind is of a parent sitting beside a young child who is tucked under the covers ready for a perfect bedtime story. The ritual of reading aloud to kids before bed is an important one in many households. And even if it is not, we here at Rachel's World would hope that it could become part of every child's life. Just as iconic as the bedtime read-aloud are the stories that go with them. Goodnight Moon by Margaret Wise Brown was originally published in 1947, and today it remains a bedtime staple all over the world. But Goodnight Moon does not have to be the only wonderful bedtime story for adults to share with their little ones. Let me tell you about some of my favorite bedtime books that connect to some of children's other favorite things. One of my all-time favorites is Goodnight, Goodnight Construction Site by Sherry Rinker and illustrated by Tom Lichtenheld. On the construction site, all the trucks are done with their work and are getting ready for night. Rinker shows us how each truck prepares with a perfectly rhyming text, and Lichtenheld's illustrations give the trucks such delightful personalities. This is the perfect bedtime book for all those machine-obsessed kids out there, showing them that everyone has to take a break at night so they can be ready for the hard work of the next day. Another bedtime story I really like that connects to some kids' obsessions is Bedtime for Batman by Michael Dahl and illustrated by Ethan Beavers. Juxtaposing the bedtime routine of a young boy who dons his Batman pajamas with the adventures of the comic book hero himself, this tale is perfectly grounded in its comic book origins, but turns it into a wonderful tale just right for bedtime. And if we're talking about bedtime stories with things that kids love, we can't forget Dinosaur vs. Bedtime by Bob Shea. Since a lot of kids go through their dinosaur phase, this book's strong, bright illustrations are perfect as they show dinosaur tackling the world and that bath before bedtime. So if you're looking for a little something to spice up a bedtime routine, we suggest here at Rachel's World that you check out one of these great bedtime stories that will connect to some of the things your kids love. And maybe, just maybe, that will help them like bedtime just a little bit more. We all need money just to get along in the world. Then hopefully, a little more to do some fun things. Can money ever last? Can we really control our money rather than it controlling us? Our first guest, financial planner Greg Merset, helps us think about our own financial skills and emphasizes the importance of us teaching these skills to children. Merset is co-creator of Busy Kid, a website that aids parents and adults in teaching kids how to manage money. A father of six, Merset is a certified financial planner and consultant who has become a leading advocate for sound parenting, child accountability, and financial literacy. Here's Rachel with Greg Merced. We're on the phone today with Greg. Welcome, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, Greg, I am so excited to have you here because you are very passionate about a very important subject, and that is financial literacy. 
I think that that is something that all of us can understand a little bit more about, particularly as we work with our kids and help them develop those kinds of literacies. So tell us from your perspective, what is financial literacy? Okay, so I could give you the nice textbook definition here, which is, you know, uh, uh, some skills and knowledge that allows you to make good, informed financial decisions, right? Or I can give you my real definition of financial literacy, and the way I define it is the skills to get out of my house and never come back except to visit, okay? That's what I want my kids to get, which is I want them to be financially self-sufficient. And those kinds of skills are probably one of the most important skill sets that our kids can actually get from us. But it's becoming increasingly hard to kind of teach them this stuff. Um, And if you don't mind, I'll just kind of launch into that, which is this concept of financial abstraction. And what I mean about that is invisible money. Like we are more and more becoming a cashless society and we're trying to teach our kids about something that they actually don't see very often. Kind of gone are the days where you have a piggy bank on your dresser and you're, you know, putting coins in it. Those kind of things don't really happen anymore. I don't know about you, but my kids very rarely see me with cash in my pocket or coins, you know, in my pocket or, or whatever. And so we got to get them to where they can make financial decisions for themselves and get out of our house and never come back. <laughs> I like that getting real definition. And I think you are very correct in stating that the physicalness of money is really disappearing. And even the physicalness of currency is disappearing because we start getting into things like Bitcoin and all of these other kinds of virtual realms of money. So how is it in this new environment that we can help as adults to start helping our kids develop these important financial literacy skills? Right. So that is the that is the big question, right? And I think what it all boils down to is we have to provide experiences for our kids. And I mean that in two different ways. We have to provide experiences for them to learn a work ethic. Um, I think that's increasingly hard for parents as well because, um, you know, we're much more of an urban lifestyle. A lot of people, a lot of families, a lot of kids, we're all sitting around watching Netflix and scrolling through Instagram. We're not out milking the cow. So there's a lot of kind of struggle with that, but we have to, We have to provide them experiences to actually learn a work ethic. And I am a big proponent of the fact that your kids live in your house. That is where you teach them. So provide opportunities for them to work around your house. Um, There's lots of them. Um, We've got six kids ourselves. And let me tell you, there's plenty to keep them all busy. It's just a matter of getting organized, getting a program in place. And I think along with work ethic, is working side-by-side side with them helps a lot as well. It's, it's one thing to boss them around. It's another thing to kind of roll up your sleeves and go trim the bushes or mow the lawn or scrub the toilet with them as they learn. That providing experiences for them to learn work ethic is super key. And then kind of uh, alongside that is this ability for us to provide experiences for them 
to learn how to make good money decisions. And that's not that hard. We just have to give them the tools that they need to start making those decisions, and then we just have to help them a little bit along the way. And they're going to make mistakes, and that's okay, because I'd rather them make a mistake when they're 9 than when they're 29, and having to come once again live in your basement because they've made so many mistakes that they're, you know, a train wreck. So provide experiences, work ethic, and how to make good decisions with money. That's so insightful, Greg. I really like that this financial literacy is so much more than just the physicalness of money or how do we use our money. And it really is about the working and being involved in the types of skills and things we need to be gainfully employed one day or be able to bring financial resources into our homes. So I really like that balance. You also mentioned mistakes. So could you talk a little bit more about that? What is it that mistakes might help our children learn? And how can we, as adults, help our children benefit from those kinds of mistakes so they don't have to come back later on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, here, here, here's maybe a couplet here. Good judgment comes from experience, right? We all know that. An adult knows that. And experience, well, that comes from poor judgment, right? So we learn from our mistakes, and there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. And like I said, I think it's much more impactful for a child to make mistakes when they're younger um, than when they're older. So um, I think the, the, the best way to avoid these mistakes is getting a system in place and then sticking with it. I think that's one thing that's just super hard for parents in this kind of turbulent environment where we're trying to teach them about work ethic and money and there's all these challenges and you can't see it and nobody works real hard anymore, et cetera, et cetera. So you gotta, you got to get a system and you got to stick with it. Consistency is super key. That is really interesting to me that this whole thing is a process and a system, and it really has to do, I think, with critical thinking and, and explaining to our children, we've made these decisions because of these other decisions and showing them that kind of thought process. So could you maybe outline for us briefly uh, what would a system or process look like that we could implement in our families to help children learn some of these financial literacy skills? Sure. I mean, I, I hope this doesn't come off as a shameless plug, but I mean, I've been working in this space for a long time, but Busy Kid is, you know, kind of our product, which is the system. And it makes it very easy to do this whole allowance system. And um, we even got to the point where we actually suggest chores based upon a kid's age. We suggest the dollar amount that needs to be paid for that chore. We suggest the allocation or the splitting up of the money because I think it's really important when kids start earning some money that they split it up and they appropriately start allocating their own their money. So, um, and th those really boil down to three big buckets: the saving, sharing, and spending. Right. So. That's what we as adults do. We go to work, we earn some money, we save some. It might be in a 401k or an IRA or just a savings account or whatever. We share with charity or church or other things that we find meaningful. And then we spend the rest. 
I mean, that's that's reality, right? That's that's finance 101. So we have to kind of reiterate that with our kids from an early start. So it's not you earned ten dollars. Why didn't you go spend ten dollars? Or I want this specific thing. I'm going to work just long enough to get the money for that specific thing, <laughs> right? That that doesn't work in the real world, right? So we have to teach them from an, a very early age that you earn money, but you know what? It actually gets split up, and that's the way the real world works. You know, the most recent DICPA study on this, over 90% of parents agree that chores and allowance serve a purpose, then why do we all stink at it so bad? Um, it's just, it's a tough thing, but we're making some big headway on it. Well, I really appreciate your Busy Kid website. I think it is a phenomenal resource for parents out there to get started in this. So we don't quite make as many mistakes or have as much stress with this issue as we do. Greg, as we close up our conversation today, what maybe might be, other than going to Busy Kid, what might be that one tip that you could give to a parent or concerned adult out there to kind of get them on the the good path to helping their kids develop? financial literacy? I think you need to take um, these teachable moments and turn them into something. Um, let me explain that a little bit. I think, I think it's actually much easier than we think. So imagine you're at the checkout stand at the local store, Walmart, okay, and you're in the line and you've got two of your kids in tow and here you are ready to pay. That is a perfect opportunity to teach them what the difference is between a debit card and a credit card. It's so easy. Like, all you literally have to do is say, hey, there's these two cards in my pocket. Do you see any difference with these? And they'll probably say, no, they look the same to me. But they're a little different. Let me explain to you. A debit card is a card that's hooked right to my, uh, you know, account at the bank. And once I swipe this card for the 11250 that we're going to spend right now, it's going to suck that money right out of my account and pay Walmart. And then you can go into this card that looks the same as a credit card, and they send you a bill every month, and if you don't pay, you're going to get penalized, and you're going to have to pay interest. All of a sudden, in a one-minute little situation, you've taught them actually a really big lesson. So grab those moments and seize them and teach them uh, in a very simple way. A perfect way to end our conversation today. Thank you so much, Greg, for breaking down some of these basic financial literacies for us. Thank you. Greg Merced, financial planner and consultant, talking about what we can do as concerned adults to help children manage money. Next, Rachel welcomes BYU reading pedagogy teacher Dewan Coombs, who discusses how we can help young readers develop a broader interest in books. The first step, surprise of all surprises, is focusing on books with subjects they actually like. Dewan Coombs is an assistant professor who teaches in the BYU English Teaching Program. Her research examines the role of identity in the struggles of adolescent readers and seeks to identify best classroom practices in support of these students. Here's Rachel and Dewan Coombs. We're in studio with Dewan today. Welcome. Thanks. 
You know, I talk to my students and all the people that I engage with, and I say, you know, one of the things that's you know the trickiest we have here as kind of literacy experts or readers is this fact that in order to really love a book, we have to make this very deep personal connection to it. And that to me is kind of a magical sweet spot mm-hmm. that, that I don't know – I don't know entirely how to get to. I know when it happens and it's glorious when it does. But really, as concerned adults and particularly for teenagers, if we can get to that lovely sweet spot where we make just a really great connection to a book, things are amazing. So tell us a little bit, what have you found that helps readers make these kinds of of connections with books that make it so powerful? So... um... Research shows that interest and motivation and choice are a huge part of what um, influences the types of books that students will read and the types of literacy practices they choose to engage in. Um, When students are interested in topics, then they're willing to work harder and learn more. And so when you can center um, reading experiences around things that students are interested in, those can really be entry points into texts. And so it doesn't necessarily mean you have to find the one book, but the questions that you're using to frame inquiry, if they're interesting and relevant to students, those can help them find relevance in the text that they choose. Um, But what's kind of ironic about this is the material and the topics that students are often most interested in are those that are absent from classrooms because we want to talk about things that we like as teachers. And so if we're willing to integrate students' interests, that, that can be really key. So give us a good example of what would be something like that student interest that that we wouldn't normally do in a classroom. So a few semesters ago, I took three of my pre-service teachers and we went over to a high school and we taught a reading class. And we didn't call it reading like the rest of the literacy classes were called, but we called it sports English. And we interviewed the kids that we wanted, that had the opportunity to take the class and they needed to either, they needed to be struggling readers. And some of them self-identified as that. Sometimes their test scores identified them as that. And they had to be interested in sports. They didn't have to play sports well, or but they needed to be interested in them. And so the whole class was designed to help them learn reading strategies, to help them practice reading. But we were doing it with texts that they cared about and that um, connected with these other identities that were really valuable to them. And we weren't sure if this was going to work or not, but what we We wanted to give it a try. And so um, the way that we set it up, we would offer the kids a choice of the types of questions that they wanted to look at. Like one time it was like, what does it take to become an Olympian or are athletes above the law or how does culture influence sports? And so they could choose which question they were most interested in. And then they had a variety of texts that they were exposed to, you know, newspaper articles, magazines, young adult fiction, um, nonfiction books that they could read to help answer this question. And so it was hopefully designed in the way that we hope inquiry happens. And a lot of those kids that were interested in sports but were not interested in reading were willing to, like, take that first step because they were interested. And then by the end of the class, not all of them, you know, turned into these miraculously reborn readers, but most of them realized that other interests they had were also represented in books. And so some of the reading they were doing for outside of class connected with their interest in things that happened in history or things that were going on in the world, more contemporary issues. And they started to expand their ideas of what it meant to be a reader and how the things that they were doing in class really would matter in their own lives. 
I like that sense. Did you did you find that their engagement in the class was probably greater than it would have been in another class, or like their their test scores or the the way that they were graded was actually empowered them to have better outcomes than they might have if they'd been in a different class, do you think? So we talked to them about, you know, like, what did you get from this class? What do you wish things, you know, how do you wish things would have been different? And most of them talked about how the sports focus made them initially willing to try things. And then the fact that everyone in the class kind of had to, like, take the same risks, because since they were working in smaller groups, it was harder to hide. Then that made it a more of a safe environment. And honestly, these kids that struggled, they wanted some one-on-one time with teachers. And having those three, like, developing teachers in there working forced them to kind of have some individual accountability. And they wanted that because it's not like that. It's not that kids who struggle don't want to learn and they want to be challenged, but they want it to happen within this realm that they know that they can achieve. Right. So you don't want the risk to be too difficult or the challenge to be too difficult because you can't achieve it. You don't want things to be too easy because then, well, my teacher thinks I'm dumb. I can't do this. And so finding that sweet spot is really important. And so that can happen in the classroom, but it also needs to happen through books and through interest and all of that. Yeah, I I think this brings up another interesting question in my mind is, you know, what students value is important. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes as teachers, we don't see that as valued. So how can we advocate either as teachers or parents for those things that are really interesting and really important to these students and and to show them that, yes, what they read and what they're interested in is valued? There's plenty of research out there that supports these types of approaches. Uh, It just comes from a different maybe worldview or theoretical framework than the ones that are perpetuated and valued by standardized testing models and those sorts of things. And so I think doing your homework and finding out um, the research that supports that, because then it allows you to have a solid rationale for the approach that you want to take and what you want to do in your classroom. And no principal or parent is going to be able to argue with, you know, research, resources, and results, right? So keeping track also of things that are working in your classroom and being able to show that and defend it can be important too. Well, and I think too, as parents, one of the things we can do, if you see that class offered that's sports English, Mm -hmm. you think, wow, what a great thing, instead of thinking, sports English. Right. (laughs) Why would they offer that class? And do, I mean, ask questions about it, right? Because I'd be happy to talk to any parent about that, but you have to have an open mind about it. Don't come in attacking it and trying to shut it down. Really legitimately come and ask questions and see what's going on. Because maybe that, we had a bunch of kids partway through the semester who wanted to add the class that were like, excelling readers, right? But they they didn't know it was not, it was a type of class that was just for kids that struggled. And this was something they were interested in. And so you can learn these skills and strategies in a lot of contexts, you know, but do it with, with student things that students are interested in, and then they'll do more than they would to just complete an assignment. I think that sometimes as teachers, we we just want to teach stuff that we love. But I think about like the best parents, right? And they may not be interested in zombies or they might not be into sports, but if those are the things their their kids care about and they want to keep the dialogue open, then they go and learn about those things, not to be disingenuous, but because they there's something in those things that are speaking to their child. And so as teachers, if we do the same thing, we listen to those conversations that are happening and we 
you know, we maybe we aren't interested in those things, but we ask questions and we try to figure out what that fascination is, then we're valuing the things that they value. And sometimes that opens it up for them to, you know, value the things that we value, because maybe there is an issue that are, you know, that's happening in the sports world that totally resonates with this issue in our favorite novel. But we can't introduce kids to that conversation unless we're aware of what they care about. And then we're aware of the literature that's out there to have to invite them into those conversations. I love that sense of conversation. So why is that important? I mean, why is having this conversation around books and literature, why is that something we need to do? We're only in school for 12 years, but we have our whole lives to learn. And a lot of kids go through school and they feel like they just want to be done learning and outliving their lives. But if we can get them to become lifelong learners, then when they have books and, you know, all this information available to them, then they're they're willing to keep reading and keep learning. And that's, I mean, that's really the types of citizens that we want out there making decisions for us, right? Running the world when we're not around. And so if we can help them um, learn to be those types of thinkers, then we're probably all going to be a lot better off. And that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Rachel Wadham with reading pedagogy teacher Dewan Coombs. We hope you'll find value in the educational tips and pointers offered by expert guests on Worlds Awaiting. Try out a few, test them for yourself, and see what kind of positive influence you might have in the growth of a child or young adult. We finish up the show with a book review from Mindy Hale, teen literature librarian at the Orem Public Library in Utah. Hale introduces a young adult novel entitled Blue Screen by Dan Wells. I'm going to review a book by a local writer, Dan Wells. He's a Utah writer who writes for older teens and adults. And his newest book, published this year by Balzer and Bray, is called Blue Screen. And it's the first in a planned series called the Mirador Novels. Blue Screen is set in 2050 in L.A., which has become a sprawling megalopolis where the rich are richer than ever. and The poor can't get any jobs because everything from laundry services to driving has been automated by drones and droids. Nearly everyone, rich and poor alike, have jacked their brains directly into the internet via smart devices called Ginnies. With one blink, Ginny users can access their emails, their social network sites, their video feeds, everything on the internet they can access through their brains and their Ginnies. However, all but the most technologically savvy are also bombarded constantly by adware. The main character of Blue Screen, Marissa Karnaseka, is a 17-year-old hacker, and she divides her time between the online world, where she's a skilled, almost professional gamer, and her L.A. neighborhood, Mirador, which is where the series gets its name, and where she goes to school, works at her family's Mexican restaurant, and whenever she can, she goes clubbing with her friends. And one of these friends, one of her best friends, tries a street drug called Blue Screen that plugs directly into her Ginny and therefore to her brain. This drug supposedly provides a safe, non-chemical high, but instead leaves her brain and her body open to outside manipulation. So Marissa, who is terrified not only for her friend's safety, but also for the safety of her family and for her community, teams up with a gorgeous drug dealer to get the drug off the streets. But she finds, as she delves into this problem, that the conspiracy surrounding Blue Screen goes much, much deeper than she could have ever predicted. 
So Blue Screen is similar in a lot of ways to a lot of the dystopian books that precede it. M.T. Anderson's feed springs immediately into mind. And like many of these books, it does a great job of exploring the consequences, both the consequences that are positive and negative, of constant connectivity. It explores issues like privacy and the social and economic implications of, rel- of relinquishing control to machines and computers. But Blue Screen does not dwell overlong on concepts alone. It's not necessarily a concept-heavy novel. It is an action-heavy novel. And uh, that you just turn the pages as you're pulled into the action, and the plot twists just keep you riveted. Readers will stay engaged, and they will be anxious for the next installment in the series. Mindy Hale, teen literature librarian at the Orem Public Library in Utah, reviewing a young adult novel entitled Blue Screen by Dan Wells. We'll look forward to more young reader book reviews in the future. For a full collection of book reviews, check out the World's Awaiting Book Reviews link on our website at byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.